chapter 1. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you all and preaching on a regular basis. Um, I just wanted to say publicly that we have been overwhelmed by your love and care and hospitality, uh, and we are so grateful to be here with you all. James chapter 1, we will be looking at verses 14 through 17, and I'll read 13 along with it for the sake of context. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We'll stop right there. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your holy word. Father, we thank you for the privilege of studying your word together this morning. We ask that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, give us wisdom, give us hearts that would receive your word with joy and gladness. Lead me, guide me, and direct me in my teaching. And help us all to not just be hearers of your word only, but doers as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we've been studying the book of James, and so far we have covered verses 1 through 13. And in the first two sermons, we looked at the proper way to respond to trials in verses 1 through 12. And I summarized these verses by saying that we are to respond to trials with joy, knowing that they lead to endurance, which leads to Christ-likeness. We are to ask for wisdom and faith without doubting and endure to the end. And when we do this, it leads to eternal life, not because we earn eternal life, but because those who belong to Christ will endure. And this is the proper response to every trial that we face. Every trial should be a reminder to rejoice. And the last time I preached, we covered verse 13. Where we saw the beginning of a sinful response to trials. And when we looked at verse 13, we saw this person blaming God. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And when we looked at this verse in detail, we realized that James is addressing those who blame God indirectly for their temptations and sins by blaming the circumstances and people who God has placed in their lives. And as I said, this is not the temptation of a person who has a small view of God. This is the temptation of a person who believes that God is sovereign and in control of all things. 
James tells us to rejoice in trials because God uses them for our good. And he does this under the assumption that God is in control of all things. And we know that God brings us trials. And he allows, allows trials. And James understands that this theology can be misused so that a person would justify their sinful desires and actions by blaming God for allowing them to be in that situation. God, you are the one who gave me this spouse who is impossible to love. God, you brought this trial that caused me to sin. And as we saw, this is nothing new. We looked at Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve are in the garden and and they eat the forbidden fruit. And God asked them very directly, have you eaten of the fruit that I commanded you not to? And what was Adam's response? The woman who you gave me, she gave me, and I eat. And once again, Eve is the direct cause of his sin, is what he's saying. And God is indirectly responsible because, God, you gave her to me. But James says, let us not blame God for our temptations. And he gives us three reasons why we cannot blame God. And the first reason we covered last time, which was the holiness of God, The second part of verse 13, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God is so holy. He hates sin so much that he cannot be tempted to sin. He cannot tempt others to to sin because it is against his very nature. And we close last time by asking a question. If I can't blame God for my sins, if I can't blame others, if I can't blame my circumstances, if I can't blame my bad boss, if I can't even blame the devil, then who is to blame for my sins and temptations? And this leads to our text today. And we start with the second reason why We cannot blame God for our sins, and that is the nature of our sins. As we see the nature of our sins, the source of our sins, it will help us understand why we cannot blame God. So who is responsible? Verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires. And enticed. We are drawn away by our own desires. What a relevant truth today. That there are so many things that, that, that are tempting us in our culture to blame sins on other people and other things. MacArthur, in his book, The Vanishing Conscience, which he wrote years ago, pointed out how everything was being blamed on sickness, our our medicine, even even back then. You're not a thief. You have a mental problem. It's not actually sin. There's something wrong with your brain causing you to do that. 
No, you're not, it's not your fault that you're addicted to drugs and alcohol. You, you have a condition. You have a sickness. You're, you're actually sick, and we need to help you. And so we remove the sin. I was talking to three young teenage boys this past Thursday. These, these are boys who have, have, have had very rough upbringings. Inner city kids in the Grand Rapids area. Three young black boys raised without fathers. Very rough situation. And a couple of weeks ago as I was teaching them, one of the things they said to me is, how can we be responsible for sins if, if these things just come into my mind? Like It's just a natural thing. So as I was studying James, I said, what, what a relevant text to, to help them see things better. So I asked them a couple of questions this past Thursday. And I said, can God tempt you to sin? And one boy said, absolutely. God places us in situations all of the time so that we will sin. And we talked about Adam and Eve in the garden and the forbidden tree. And he actually said that God put that tree there so that they would sin. He tempted them to sin. And I said, can other people tempt you to sin? Can other people make you sin? And his response was, yes. People can put you in situations where you have no other choice but to sin. And as these are young boys raised without fathers, I I pointed out to them that 80% of those raised without a father in a home Oh, no, sorry, 80% of those youth, 85% actually, of those youth in, in prison were raised without fathers. And if you are raised without a father, you are 20 times more likely to end up in prison. So I said to them, in these situations, who is responsible for this? Is it the father or is it the, the young person who's committing these sins that, that got them put in prison? And two of them said, it's the father's fault. And only one of them said, it's both of our faults. Because we know better. that They should have been there, but we know better. But, but here are young boys who, who are being told by our culture that, that you are the product of your hard upbringing. If you've heard of Mez McConnell, Scottish man, does work in the schemes of Scotland. And he was raised in a very rough way. And, and all of the social workers always told him, Mez, you're such, a, you're such a good person, but you just had such an, a rough upbringing that you just, need to, uh, you, know, you just need to readjust. And so when Mez started reading the Bible, he, he said he wanted to punch the Apostle Paul in the face because the Apostle Paul ripped every excuse from him. Yes, my upbringing was bad, but, but guess what? If I go through life blaming all of my sins on other people, I never realize that, hey, I need to repent. It, yes, it is a very real problem that, that men are, are not taking care of their kids and abandoning them, 
making it much more likely for them to, to pursue bad lifestyles. But, but it doesn't matter. Ultimately, these young boys have to realize that they are responsible for their actions. And this is what James tells us. We sin. We are tempted because of our own desires. But what is desire? The Greek word is neutral. and can be used to speak of a longing or strong desire for something. And this can be either good or bad. In our text, it is being used to describe a sinful desire. So some translations use the word lust. But if your translation says lust, be aware that James is not just talking about sexual desire, but, but a strong desire in general. So it is our strong longings and desires that cause us to be tempted to sin. Not our situations. Not people. Sometimes we are in situations where it is easier to fulfill our sinful desires, but it is still our desires that lead us astray. So this happens in two ways, or one of two ways. Either we desire things that are sinful. For example, a man desiring another man's wife. There is no situation in which that is okay. It is inherently sinful. But sometimes our desires are wrongly prioritized. In this case, our desires become idolatrous. You can take a, a good desire, like a, a desire to, to make money to provide for your family, and, and you can become idolatrous in your desire for it, and you can be tempted to desire a good thing to a sinful extent. So these are the two ways our desires can be sinful. But what draws out these sinful desires? James says we are drawn away and enticed. Drawn away or, or lured, as some translations put it, is a hunting term. It describes something being dragged away by inner desire. For example, the bait in a trap luring an animal. And this is how we catch mice. You don't take a mouse and throw it at a trap so that the trap gets set. The smell of the cheese lures the mouse out of that invisible hole wherever it is in your house. And it draws it to the trap. And this is what James is saying. And the word for enticed in the Greek describes a similar thing. But this is a fishing term, a word used to describe fishing bait. The bait draws the fish to it. So James' use of words here gives us a vivid picture of how we are tempted to sin. We are tempted to sin because we are baited by sin. We are drawn to sinful things, lured to sinful things because it looks appealing as bait looks appealing to a fish. Our remaining flesh is attracted 
to things it should not be attracted to. MacArthur puts it this way, animals and fish are successfully lured to traps and hooks because the bait is too attractive for them to resist. It looks good and smells good, appealing strongly to their senses. Their desire for the bait is so intense that it causes them to lose caution and to overlook or ignore the trap or the hook until it is too late. In exactly the same way, we succumb to temptation when our own lust draws us toward evil things that are appealing to fleshly desires. When you are tempted, you are like a mouse sniffing along and and smells something appealing. And you look over and and you see the cheese The mouse is skeptical of this cheese. He doesn't know if it's safe to go for, so he looks there, smelling around, watching to see if the coast is clear. But his desire is so strong that he can't ignore the cheese. This is us. That is temptation. When something sinful appeals to our fleshly desire, we become tempted to sin. It is not God who is tempting us. It is our fleshly desires wanting something sinful. But now the fact that temptation is referred to as bait means what? It is a trap. When you are tempted... You, you know that it is a trap. That there is a hook in that thing that looks so appealing to your flesh. It, it is not a good time. It's not pleasure. It's a trap. It's bait. And we need to learn how to recognize bait. So there you are scrolling on the internet. And you see something that appeals to your flesh. And it looks good. Your flesh says, just look at it. Just click on it. It will bring you great pleasure. What is that? There's a little fishing lure right there. It's bait. Your spouse does something that makes you upset. You want to tell them off, but you are trying to control your anger because you know it does not lead to good things. You know it's wrong to yell at them, to disrespect them. But what does your flesh say? If I do this, it's going to feel so good. That is bait. If I cheat on this test, nobody will know, and I will get an easy A. Bait. I know that as a Christian, I should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, but this person is so nice, and perhaps I will convert them. Bait. 
I know that I should not deny my faith before men, but if I just do it one time, I will be spared great embarrassment. Bait. If I disobey my parents and do these wrong things in order to please my friends, they will accept me and think highly of me. Bait. These things are baited hooks. There is always something that appeals to our desires. And, 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 and Satan, you, you think you're a good fisherman. Satan is a good fisherman. He knows which bait you will fall for. He, he knows what bait is appealing to you. He does not tempt you with things that are not appealing to you. He brings you those temptations that you, that you believe that you cannot live without. But it is always something that appeals to our desires, right? Our own desires. So as I was talking to these young boys on Thursday who, who told me, People can put you in situations where you have no choice but to sin. I pointed out to him that that if you believe that, if you believe that, you you, you have to see that that, that even within that, there's there's going to be something within your desires that, that are making you want to sin in that situation. For example, if I put a gun to your head right now and say, sin or die. What would cause you to sin? Your desire to preserve your life over obedience to God. It is, once again, desire. And remember that James is dealing with trials in this section. So how do we look at this in the context of our response to trials? Remember, God does not tempt us to sin, but he does bring us trials. When we sin in our trials, it is not because God is tempting us. But it is because during our trials, some kind of sin, which is bait, draws our attention and lures us. The devil says, God is putting that person through a trial right there. Let me cast a little lure over there and see if I can tempt him and draw him away. Distract him from what he should be doing. Perhaps God allowed you to face a trial last week that tested your patience. And in that trial, you should have been patient, knowing that your faith was being tested so that you could grow as a Christian. But instead of responding that way, your pride rose up within you and said, if you release your frustration and tell this person off, you will be relieved. And you knew it was bait. And you took it. Dear friends, we know that temptation is bait. Is there anybody in here who doesn't know that? We we know that temptation is bait. And yet... The bait is so alluring to our flesh that we often follow the bait right into the trap. 
You ever think you caught the same fish twice and you're like, this fish is dumb. He took my Lord two times. God has given us a brain and a conscience far superior to that of a fish, and we take the bait a thousand times. What does that say about us? But what does taking the bait lead to? When we respond to trials the proper way, we are told that endurance leads to perfection or sanctification. But what does giving into our sinful desires lead to? What happens when we bite the hook? Verse 15. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. James uses birthing terms here, conceived and and gives birth. The point is that our desires are not only the reason we are tempted to sin, but the reason we act upon that temptation and actually commit the sin. Sinful bait lures us. It looks good to us. And it causes us to be tempted. And, And the bait is so appealing that we stop fighting the temptation, and we give in. Our desires, for whatever bait is before us, brings forth sin. But how is sin conceived? We we often say, well, I just fell into sin. Is that how it happens just so fast and so suddenly we just fall into it? Well, maybe occasionally we act very impulsive and we didn't think about it, but that's not usually the case. MacArthur makes the point that sin is not a spontaneous act, but the result of a process. So so what is this process? What is this desire conceived? How does this happen? MacArthur lays out a four-step process we go through as desire conceives and brings forth sin. So I'll give you four steps that all start with a D. So first there is desire. And this has to do with our emotions. We, we desire the bait. We want the bait. Our emotions are involved at this step because we really want whatever it is that we see. It is appealing to us. It is luring and enticing us. It is the cheese on the mouse trap drawing in the mouse. The, the, the mouse desires the cheese. We usually know that whatever is tempting us is wrong. We know it's bait. So why don't we just stop right there? We don't stop because our sinful desires are lured. And so we move on to the next step in temptation, which is deception. And this is where we actually begin to justify giving in to temptation. You see, you and I have a conscience. We know better. So what do we have to do to allow ourselves to give in to temptation? We usually have to justify it in some way. So how do we justify our sins? Several ways. 
Well, sometimes we are tempted to doubt God or his word. This is what the devil did to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat of the fruit? Is it really wrong? This works for some people. But usually not for those who know Scripture and believe that Scripture is authoritative. So what do we do? Well, some people blame God. And this is what is dealt with in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. In the midst of our trials, we say, God, you have me in this situation. You put me here. Therefore, if I do this, it's kind of your fault. But those of us who understand God's holiness, we know better than that, don't we? So what do we do? We justify giving in to our desire to sin by deceiving ourselves into thinking that the pleasure will make it worth it. Have you ever done that? The pleasure will be worth it. We know in our minds that sin is not worth it. We know the pleasure does not outweigh the cost. But we presume upon the grace of God and we sin. Telling ourselves, God will forgive me and the the pleasure will be so great that, that, that I'll just do it one more time. We're actually willing to deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Whenever you tell yourself as a believer that that this sin is worth it, it's going to be so pleasurable that it's worth it, you're literally lying to yourself, and you know it. You know it's not worth it. But this is why we must kill temptation as soon as it comes. The longer you flirt with your temptation, the stronger it becomes. And the harder it becomes to walk away from the temptation. I believe this is one of the reasons why Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. He's not going to sit there and let this woman touch him and seduce him and and just believe that he's going to just stand still and resist the entire time. No, I better flee from this situation before my desires calls me to justify my sin and I commit sin against God. We justify sin because of the pleasure it brings. But what does James say? And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Not pleasure, not happiness, not joy, but death. Sin leads to death. We've heard the saying, sin courts and then it kills. It promises pleasure, but delivers pain. Thomas Watson said the the pleasure of sin is soon gone. But the sting remains. Consider this in the life of King David. 
What a vivid example of this. David sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof. Stop right there. Get out of there. He doesn't do that, does he? He watches her. And he sees that she's beautiful. He's following the lure. One of those little fancy lures that go in the water and make noise and sounds. He's just following the lure. He lusts for her. And obviously he believes that if he has her, he will have joy and satisfaction. So he commits adultery with her. And what happened next? Bathsheba is pregnant. And this is a problem because guess what? She's a married woman. So instead of satisfaction, David finds himself in trouble. And so David has a thought. This man, her husband, is a soldier. If I put him on the front of the lines of the battle, he will die. And my troubles are gone. Do you see the bait? Where's the first bait? If you take this woman, it will bring pleasure. Second bait, have her husband killed and you'll never get caught. Bait, bait, constantly. Sometime later, David repents of these sins. And we read his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And in this prayer, David says to God, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That reveals something to us. But wait a minute. David got away with his sins. He not only had this woman he was lusting after, this beautiful woman. He not only had her one time, but but now her husband is out of the picture. He didn't get caught, and he can have her whenever he wants. Life is good, right? No. David was praying that God would restore his joy because while living in sin, he found no joy and satisfaction. Why? Because it was bait. Just enough pleasure to reel you in and then it's gone. It's bait. And maybe David had pleasure for a few moments, you say. But after the pleasure was gone, guess what? So was his joy. As Thomas Watson said, the pleasure is soon gone, but the sting remains. Remember that when you are tempted. There's no fulfillment or, or satisfaction or joy to be found in it. But when you, when, you, when you are giving in to your temptation and you say this is so pleasurable, think of yourself as a mouse eating cheese right before its neck is snapped. How pleasurable was that cheese? It tasted good for half a second. And then there was nothing else to be tasted. So it is with sin. 
difference, even if you live 80 years in this life and you enjoy the pleasures of sin every single day, just such a pleasurable, sinful life, what is that compared to eternity? Absolutely nothing. Thomas Watson said, what fools are they who for a drop of pleasure endure a sea of wrath? Take Lake Michigan here. And this is like God's wrath. And the pleasure you can have in this life in your sin is like one little drop of rain. Thomas Watson said, you are a fool. If you would endure all of that wrath, an entire sea of wrath for one little drop of pleasure. If you are giving in to your temptations and sinning against God, giving in to temptation every time it comes, believing it is worth it, I urge you and plead with you to repent. If you are refusing to submit to Christ and follow him because you love your sins and you don't want to give them up, I urge you to repent and put your faith in Christ. Stop eating the cheese on the mousetrap before it snaps your neck. The pleasure your sin brings is not worth eternity in hell. And not only that, but there's so much more pleasure and joy and satisfaction to be found in following Christ than there ever could be in your sins. Dear friends, it does not matter what you have done in your past. Another one of the temptations of the devil was to say, you have been too wicked of a sinner to come to Christ. It's too late for you. You're done. You can never receive grace. You've been too bad one too many times. God would never forgive you. Don't go to him. David committed adultery and murder. And God says he is a man after my own heart. Why? Because of his faith. Dear friends, it does not matter how bad of a sinner you have been in this life. There is grace to be found in Christ. The heavier your sins are upon you, the more you should want to go to Christ so that he can wash you clean. Dear friends, if you have gone to the cross and put your faith in Christ, Christ has taken your sins and he has given you his perfect righteousness so that when God views you, he no longer sees your sinful past, but he sees the perfect, spotless righteousness of his beloved son. But if you're going to blame your sins on other people, you don't see the weight of it. You don't think you need to change. You don't think it's your fault. Dear friends, it is your fault when you sin. It is your own desires. But when James says that sin, full grown, leads to death, I believe he's talking to believers here. And so we know that the unbeliever will have death and eternity in hell 
But he realized that God will often even take believers out of this world because of their sins. Not that he cast you in hell. But sometimes there are grave consequences for what we do. Consider what Paul says in Corinthians about those who partake in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Some are sick and some sleep, meaning dead. Even though our sins are washed white, it does not mean that the consequences are not great sometimes. So what happens when we deceive ourselves so that we justify our desire to give in to temptation? That leads to the next step, which is design. And this is where we make the devious plan to carry out our sin. Once again, we did not just fall into sin. We desired it. We deceived ourselves into justifying giving in to our temptation, and then we create a plan to carry it out. How am I going to do this without getting caught? Let me think of a way to go and fulfill this desire. And sometimes we just do it that fast because we're so wicked, we do it that fast create a plan that fast in our minds that we don't even realize that we do it, but we actually do that. We make a plan to carry it out, to carry it around. The next time my wife comes to me and she says something to me, I'm going to let her have it. I'll wait for right now. That's a plan. I'm going to go and be alone now so that nobody can see what I'm doing on my phone. That is a plan. I'm going to figure out how to cheat at work so that I don't have to do my work all of the time and only work when the boss is around. That is a plan. We see this with David in Bathsheba. He sees that she's beautiful and he desires her, so what does he do? 2 Samuel 11.3, So David sent and inquired about the woman. What are you doing, David? He's desired for her. He's obviously justified this somehow in his mind, and, he, and he's not falling into sin. And this is why in Psalm 51, his repentance is so great because he knows he didn't just fall into sin. He did some pretty bad stuff. But, but how would he fall into sin? No, he, he is inquiring about this woman. He's making plans. And someone even tells him, is this not Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Did David stop? He sent messengers and brought her. He did not fall into sin. He made a plan. He knows that she is married, but he is determined to fulfill his lust, so he makes a plan to do so. And it is the same with us. Our desire for the bait becomes so strong that we deceive ourselves by justifying our desire to sin, and then we make a plan to carry it out. By the way, how, how many times here does David have, have the opportunity to repent and flee from his sins? 
so many times. It's interesting, in the manufacturing world, they tell you that you need to catch scrap or bad parts upstream. What this means is if I process it, if I have to do 20 different steps to make this part, and if I make the, the, the first step makes it a bad part, I don't want to keep processing it on and adding more money to it when it's bad. Why? Because the cost is greater the longer you, you wait to identify that it's bad and throw it out. What happens when we have problems at work or at home and we say, well, if I ignore it, hopefully it'll go away. Does it usually go away? No. It builds up. And the longer it builds up, the more of an issue it becomes. The more you are emotionally involved in it and the harder it is to deal with. So it is with our sin and temptation. The longer the mouse looks at the cheese on the trap and smells it, the harder it is going to be for his caution to prevent him from taking a bite. The longer we sit there and stare at our temptation and ask ourselves, should I really do this? Is it really worth it? The harder it will be to say no and run away from it. But again, we don't just fall into some temptation. We, we, we have this entire process that we go through with several opportunities to turn away from it, and we don't. So, so this leads to the final step, which is disobedience. And this is where we actually carry out the sin. We have moved our way from temptation to sin by justifying our desire to sin, making a plan to do it, and carrying out the plan. MacArthur says this about sin. It is conceived as a desire initially in the emotion. It is then justified in the mind. It is convinced in the, conceived in the will and brought about in the behavior. You see how your whole body is wrapped up in this. First is my emotions. And if I let it get beyond that, it goes to my mind. And then I create a plan so I get my will involved in doing the sin. And then I give into the sin and, and actually allow my actions to give into the sin and commit. So there you have it. Why we sin in our trials. This is the process we go through. Now tell me this. At what point in time in that process was God making David sin? At what point? None. At what point in our trials, as, we, as we've seen this process that lead us into to, to sin, at what point in that can we say, well, well, God tempted me right there. God calls me to sin right there. That entire time, it is us. It is our own desires. Leading us, not God, to justify our actions. Leading us to make a plan. And the entire time, God has given us a conscience and his word so that we know that it's wrong and we do it anyways and then we blame God. Dear friends, God has nothing to do with that. 
So there's a negative response to trials. We desire sinful things. We give into those sinful things. We are lured. We justify those sinful things, saying perhaps this is God's fault somehow. And then we backslide into sin and we make plans to carry out that sin. And it leads to death. So, so let's compare the two ways side by side. How will you respond to your trials? Your trials today, your trials next week. How will you respond? The proper way or the sinful way? Will you rejoice in your trials? Or will you be lured into sin? Will you endure with patience? Or will you justify your desire to sin and deceive yourself? Will you grow in sanctification and endurance? Or will you go backwards in your Christian life and backslide into sin? Will you ask God for wisdom in your trials? Or will you make plans to carry out your sins? Do you see the vast difference here? Here you are in a trial, and you are supposed to be asking God for wisdom to help you through this trial, and instead you're, you're following a piece of bait somewhere and, and, and trying to figure out how can I get away with this sin. What in the world are we doing? What a, a, a large difference here, a vast difference between responses. And the last step, will you endure to the end? James 12. Or will you carry out your plans to sin? One of these ways leads to life, we are told. The other one leads to death. Be assured of that. James says in, in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. If you are justifying your sins, justifying your temptations by blaming God, you are deceived. James is warning you, do not be deceived about this. Do not blame God. Blaming God for our temptations and, and following that down spiral of sin will lead to death. Do not be deceived about that. Thinking that it's not true. This is like James' final warning here with this. He, he shows us that, that, that God is holy. He has nothing to do with sin. And he shows us the nature of our sins, how, how we <coughs> give into temptation, how we are drawn away. And he says, don't be deceived into thinking it's any other way. <clears throat> and he mentions this for good reason. Because so many of us today are deceived. Even as Christians, we often help people deceive themselves into thinking that sin is not their fault. I've heard Christians say, you're just sick. Referring to someone who is living in their sins. Don't be deceived. John Gill says this. 
For to make God the author of sin, or to charge him with being concerned in temptation to sin, it is a very great error, a fundamental one, which strikes at the nature and being of God and at the perfection of his holiness. It is a denying of him and is one of those damnable errors and heresies which bring upon men swift destruction. Therefore, be guarded against it. Reject it. Abhor it. We know that we can't blame God for temptation because he is holy. We saw that in verse 13. We also know that we can't blame God for temptation because temptation has to do with our own desires. We saw that today. And next week, Lord willing, we will look at the final reason why we can't blame God for our temptation, and that is the goodness of God. And we will look at that in verse 17 and 18. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we confess that we often give in to our temptations knowing that they are wrong, knowing that it's bait. And we do it anyways. We, we justify sinning against you in our minds and make devious plans to, to commit acts of sin against you. And how foolish are we, Lord, to, to, to take such great care to not get caught by others while you see all things that we do. Help us, Lord. To not be drawn away and lured by sinful desires and passions. Help us to mortify our sins, to mortify our flesh. To know that to, to live by the flesh is death. Help us to realize the seriousness of our sins and that we would turn to you and live for you, and, and, and look to you for wisdom of how to, to get through trials and to, how to get through temptation. Help us to not flirt with our temptations, but to kill them and flee from them, that we would live in such a way that you would be glorified. Father, if there's anyone here who does not know you, help them to see the cost of their sins, the punishment that comes from their sins, and help them to see you as a gracious God who has provided a sacrificial lamb for them. And may they repent and put their faith in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.